Welcome all you wiretappers out there back here in the studio of Gangland Wire. As you can tell, a nice warm spring day. It might be even warmer by the time I get this out, but it's beautiful today. I think it's going to be maybe 75 here in Kansas City. Played golf yesterday and uh, getting ready to start back into the golf season. We play at least once during the week and every Sunday. Uh, today, I have an interesting show. I, I got to talking to uh, a man I met on, I see post a lot and make comments and seems to know a lot about the outfit in up in Chicago on the Facebook pages up there on uh, Mike Burns, uh, Chicago outfit, new and recent articles or something. I could never remember the name of that. I always joke with Mike that, you know, you, you need to have a shorter name for your podcast or your uh, Facebook page. And the other one's the, uh, shout the Chicago outfit, old and new, I believe. And then there's another one just about the Chicago outfit. I tell you guys in Chicago, you got a lot of Facebook action going more than any other city, I think. Uh, and it's really, uh, everybody, there's a lot of active people on people know a lot about the outfit, people that were involved with the outfit in some peripheral manner, at least. And, uh, uh so they're, they're great Facebook pages, but, you know, James got hold of me and he's told me that, uh, did I say your name? Uh, James Imlich. Welcome, James. Welcome. Thank you. <laughs> okay. So, Pleasure, Gary. <laughs> good to have you on the show. And uh, uh, I appreciate you getting hold of me and telling me about all those trials you've gone to. Now, James goes to a lot of the different trials. And so we were discussing different ones they went to about maybe doing a show on it, give a, you know, a, a fly on the wall kind of view of what happens at some of those big mob trials and they'd gone to the family secrets trial. And of course that being the biggest one, I'm going to lead off with the biggest one. We've got some others that will probably be coming up in the future, but the family secrets trial was huge. And, and it, it, Pretty much, it was a, a, a sea change, and it was a watershed moment in in really Midwest mob history because Chicago affects so many other people and Western, you know, Las Vegas and all that. We had just finished the skim trials in Kansas City, and uh, out of the 1970s and early 80s, uh, put Joey Ayupa in jail for a long time, and Jackie Cerrone and and Angelo La Pietra and and really decimated the uh, upper echelon at the outfit. But, you know, the, the Chicago outfit, like other mafia families, the way they're designed is they're not, they're designed where if you can take out the head, if the head gets killed, if the head goes to the penitentiary for 50 years, it doesn't matter because there's somebody groomed and ready to step in behind it. And, and so when we took out the heads down here in Kansas City in the trials here, I say we, the FBI, and it was in Chicago, Milwaukee, Cleveland, Las Vegas, FBI, and the Kansas City Police helped, uh, you know, to a uh, probably a lesser extent, but but we worked on that. And they tried them all in Kansas City, we took all those guys out, and, and then the new echelon moves up. But then the Family Secrets trial comes in, and and they got a couple people to turn that that really made a huge dent and, and changed the outfit forever. And they were already they'd lost their power in the Teamsters. They'd lost their power in, in the uh, casinos to get that steady stream of skim money coming back, you know, to have for the outfit to have, you know, a hundred thousand a month, maybe every month cash money coming in. You know, it's just, and lose that, you know, you talk about losing something and losing the connection to the Teamsters. Cause right after that, the government took over the Teamsters, made it a trusteeship 
and kicked everybody out and, and take, took the organized crime influence out of the Teamsters. And, and those are two huge, big power bases for the outfit. So coming on top of that, then you have these major people that come in and talk about the family secrets. And briefly what happened, there was a uh, Frank Calabrese senior who was a, uh, had a crew and uh, uh, he was a hit man and, and was involved in every aspect of the Chicago outfit, Shylocking and loan uh, business and uh, gambling. You know, gamblers always end up borrowing money. He was a, a major enforcer and he was in the penitentiary with his son, Frank Jr. for Shylocking and other racketeering charges. Uh, had kind of a complicated relationship that father and son, and and uh, they had uh, had this thing already uh, in the works. They're kind of being a bonnet or a burr under the saddle of Calabrese Senior, and that Calabrese Junior had stolen like I think hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash that he had secreted away to feed his uh, cocaine habit. Yeah, and he's talked about that a lot. I've had him on the show, and he's talked about that in other places, and. Uh, and so they had this complicated relationship and, and they're out on the yard. And, and I remember reading the book and Calabrese Jr. He's, you know, he's worried his father is going to set him up to kill him maybe, or he, he knows that his father's expecting him to be really involved with the outfit and, and to get, participate in murders in the future. And he had just like, I guess he had just worn down. He said, you know, I, I just can't do this. I can't spend the rest of my life doing this. And, and he got hold of the FBI and, and, you know, believe this or not, but believe it, he did it. He wore a wire on his own father inside the penitentiary out in the yard. It was, it was an amazing story. And, and from that, they started taking down his father and they started looking at a series of murders and, and they suspected Frank and his brother, Nick Calabrese, Frank senior and his brother, Nick Calabrese of being involved in some murders. And they found one, a uh, John Farricata. Uh, and at that crime scene, Frank Jr. told him that he had gone back out to find the gun that his dad had thrown away or his uncle. I can't remember now, but they threw away this gun. And the Bureau went back and looked at that murder. And they found there was a glove that had been recovered by the cops there at the scene. And it was a bloody glove. And it had blood from the victim and, and it had other DNA in it. And then they connected that DNA up to Nick Calabrese and, and that was it for him. You know, that he was a dead man there as far as the, either the outfit was going to have to kill him or he was going to have to go into witness protection, I think. And, and uh, because he had a case, uh, the case was going to give him uh, a life for sure. He chose to go in and this started with Frank Calabrese Jr. So that sets up the trial. And they're taken down when Nick Calabrese starts testifying and starts talking to the FBI, exposes all these other murders because they were a hit team. You know, they used to call it the Calabrese necktie because they'd uh, they would uh, cut their throat. Uh, they'd shoot them and cut their throat. And uh, that was what you would call the Calabrese necktie. So it's uh, they were a violent, vicious crew and we're responsible for a lot of murders and we're connected right to the top. And the boss by this time, I believe was James Marcello and they were connected right up to him and could bring him down. So James, welcome. I hope I didn't take up too much time, but I just want people to know, you know, this is set the scene and you go to the trial. Correct. Welcome and, Gary. And you knew 
you kind of knew the basics of, of what this was about, I would have to assume, before you even went in there. I did. Uh, the, uh, the indictment came out shortly before the trial. So I marked that down on my calendar. And um, once the trial started, I was in court, not every day, but the vast majority of the time I was able to uh, attend that trial. There will never be another trial like that ever. It was a legendary trial, uh, 18 murders dating back to the 70s. And a couple interesting things about that trial is number one, like you mentioned, Frank Jr. testifying against his father, Frank Sr. And then Nick, Frank's brother, testifying against his older brother. That's where the name Family Secrets came from. But the most interesting thing to me was you'll never, ever see a mob boss get on the stand and testify in his own defense. That's unheard of. And in this particular case, uh, we'll talk about it later. Joey Lombardo, at his age, probably decided, you know, at my age, what do I got to lose? So against his attorney's advice, he decided to take the stand in his own defense. And and I'll never forget Joey seeing Joey on the stand. And then Frank Calabrese, uh, the the real killer, the 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 evident most of the evidence was against Frank Senior. He decided to take the stand in his own defense. That's crazy to basically explain his side of the story. And then, last but not least, one of the defendants who was out on bond, a Chicago cop, they called him Chuan. He decided to take the stand in his own defense and failed miserably. <laughs> yeah, they usually do. Yeah. Well, let's start off with the prosecutor. He's kind of uh, slips under the radar. I was talking to Red when met a little bit about this. Red testified a little bit in this trial. Uh, and uh, Mitch Mars was his name, Mitchell Mars. Tell me a little bit about him. I, I think you met his mother or something. Yeah, interesting. Mitch Mars, first of all, was, in my opinion, uh, one of the best prosecutors in the country. Him and his team. I mean, they put away all the heavyweight mob guys. Um, they put away, obviously, everybody in the family secrets case. They put away El Taco, Rocky and Felice's crew. He put away uh, Betty Lauren Maltese. The mob guys hated this guy. Very similar to how the New York guys felt about Mayor Giuliani. Mm-hmm. Um, during court, though, I was sitting next to this old lady. I had no idea who she was. And her and I started making small talk. And it just so happens that her and I are kind of from the same suburb of Chicago. So we started uh, talking and she was telling me that she attends every one of her son's trials, her son, Mitch Myers. She told me ever since he was a little boy, he always wanted to put away the bad guy. You know, that was his dream. He graduated uh, top of his class, St. Lawrence High School, went on to Georgetown Law, graduated top of the class, and then he became a um, one of the top um, uh, prosecutors in Illinois. Um, at one point back in the 80s, there was a big dr- drug trial that Mitch Myers prosecuted. And the, the cocky drug dealer, his name was John Kappas, he threatened Mitch Myers. And as you know, that's, that's something you never do. You never threaten the prosecutor. No. So Mitch's Myers' mother told me, that she had to have security for several months at her house, going to the store, going to and from court. 
Um, now, it, it's interesting. I didn't know this at the time, but during the three-month family secrets trial, Mitch Mars kind of had a sore throat, a little bit of a raspy voice, and he seemed to me like he was drinking a lot of water. I had no idea, but we found out shortly after the trial, he was sick during the trial, and the poor gentleman um, died of lung cancer at the young, oh, wow. at the young age of 50. Hmm. So that was pretty devastating news to everyone in Chicago, you know, especially his his team of uh, prosecutors. Oh, yeah. And the FBI, all the agents that worked with him. Well, that's a, yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a real shame. Well, anyhow, so um, I, I guess, first of all, tell us about the people in the gallery. I, I, I mean, I walked into a mob trial that I had to testify here in Kansas City. And God, I walked in and they kept me outside, of course, until the I walk in and, and there's a whole right side was filled with all the Savella family and hangers on <laughs> and extended family, women and men. And, and, you know, they're all like staring daggers at me as I walk up, you know, they've called my name. And, and so tell us about the kind of what, just the general feel for when you go in that courtroom. I remember you told me the Savellas were all giving you dirty looks <laughs> yeah. when you walked in the courtroom. Well, it's an interesting group of people in the gallery. You have um, obviously the defendant's family and friends. Sometimes you get the victim's family and friends. You get the, obviously the federal marshals, you get members from the media, you get the, uh, the court artist lady who I like to sit next to. (laughs) Some of the cameras aren't allowed in court. So you have a court artist and you'll get uh, some uh, old retired gentleman guys that just kind of want to get out of the house, get away from their wife. And sometimes they're actually sleeping in court. And then you also get a lot of uh, retired agents like yourself, gentlemen that have been chasing these mob guys for years. Yeah. And now we finally see uh, them getting prosecuted. Uh, you'll also see some law students as well. And then a couple court buffs like myself. Uh, interesting. Interesting. Now, uh, I guess, and you mentioned this before, when, when you've got the defendant, Calabrese Jr., you've got his son up there on the stand, eight, 10 feet away from him, and you've got his brother then coming up, eight, 10 feet away from him, testifying. Can you describe that, the feeling of that? Well, you know, for, for all the wiretoppers out there, it's one thing to to read the stories and watch videos about all these mob guys. But imagine being in the courtroom, right. 10, 15 feet away from them. Now they're in court, they're on their best behavior, right? Yeah. With their lawyers. But back to Frank Jr., he was one of the first witnesses that the government called. Young guy, pretty good shape. When he walked into the courtroom, you could tell he was very nervous. And, you know, the, the government they did a pretty good job prepping him, trying to get him relaxed. And he, he, he felt confident going in, but once he saw his dad in that courtroom, the, the nerves got to him. He didn't look at his father at once. He didn't look over at the father at one time, but Frank got on the stand and basically talked about, you know, growing up in the Calabrese households, what it was like growing up, kind of like the love hate relationship he had with his family. He talked about some of the crimes he committed for his father. He talked about um, 
how his father would verbally visit physically and mentally abuse his, his son. Uh, so they kind of had a rocky relationship. He admitted to have a cocaine problem. He admitted to stealing hundreds of thousands of dollars from his dad. And why, they, as everybody knows, why they were locked up in Milan, you know, he was trying to uh, build a relationship with his father, trying to get his father to change. He thought that maybe when they were both released that his father would retire from the outfits and, and be more of a family man. Well, af afterwards, he realized his father isn't going to change. And then he started to get a little concerned about his safety that if and when they do get released, he was concerned his father was going to kill him. So after a lot of thought, as everybody knows, he wrote that uh, famous letter to the FBI and he decided to, to cooperate. So um, just imagine wearing a wire in prison on your father and he tricked his father. He conned Frank Sr., he got his father to talk about past murders in great detail that his father should have never have talked about. And in trial, the government plays these tapes. So you could clearly hear them talking about murders and crimes. Now, now one other thing Frank did that was crucial to the case, Frank Calabrese, um, he had a spe special code that he talked in. And they would basically talk in opposite genders. So instead of saying his sister, he was referring to his brother. When they talked about having a birthday party, that meant they were going to kill somebody. Hmm. When they talked about um, the little skinny lady, they really meant the fat guy. So they talked in opposite genders. The average person in the court had no idea what Frank was talking about. So his son, Frank Jr., was able to break down the code to the juries, and then you get a pretty better understanding what uh, what they were talking about. Yeah, interesting. That's that's the problem with wiretaps is you got to know uh, between the lines and behind the lines. You got to know more than just to hear that conversation. If they can't, they got to be interpreted by somebody that knows the whole picture. Yeah. So exactly. So Frank was able to um, interpret that and in. And explain to the jury in layman terms what they were talking about. Now, during the during his testimony, at times Frank Senior was glaring at his son, growling, swearing him, trying to intimidate him, and then other times he was laughing, making jokes. Um, but Frank Junior did a good job trying to ignore his dad. But I can't imagine how difficult that must have been for Frank. You know, because he does love his dad. Yeah. Yeah, it would it would be hard. It'd be the hardest thing in the world. And then we got the brother Nick. So that had to be quite a confrontation there. I got or did they just ignore each other? That's that's even I tell you what, that's even more crazy because Nick was really involved in all this stuff and absolutely and so he he you can almost understand the son. But the brother, you know, wait a minute, you talk about betraying your oath and 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 slide your own way out of a lot of murders and putting your brother in. That's uh, that's beyond the pale, if you ask me. Yeah. Nick Calabrese, when when you look at him, he does not look like a killer. He doesn't look like a mob guy. He looks like your your neighbor next door. Now, prior to Nick's testimony, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think there was ever a made member of the Chicago outfit that testified. I don't think so. I agree. 
There was associates, but never a made guy. Now, so Nick started out, he talked about his life in the military. He talked about his career as a, as an iron worker. He actually worked on the famous John Hancock building in Chicago. And then over time to make money, he started working for his brother and the Chinatown crew. Over time, his brother um, got him involved in the murders. I think it was 12 murders that Nick uh, personally took part in. And he goes into great detail on various murders. So his his testimony was devastating, not only to uh, Frank Sr., but to Jimmy Marcello, uh, Paulie the Indian, and even Joey Lombardo, because uh, Gary, he had so much detail. Only only detail they would know if you were actually there. And he he came across as a um, you know very humble, soft spoken, quiet, low key guy. Um, and same thing, he wouldn't look at his brother once. Same thing, Frank Senior would sometimes uh, swear. Uh, yell outside, try to try to throw his brother off, but his brother kept straight on with the testimony. Uh, another thing with uh, with Nick is he testified. A lot of people didn't know this prior prior to the Spilatro killing in Bensonville. The first plan they were going to kill him out in Las Vegas. So Nick testified that a, a, a hit team they all met separately in Nevada. One guy took a train, one guy drove, one guy flew, one guy who was a sleeper who was living in Arizona. They all met together. So Nick testified that Jimmy Marcello gave him an Uzi and two hand grenades to take on a train. So picture you're on a train with an Uzi and two hand grenades. Well, if you some terrorists try to take over that train why you know you could be the hero (laughs) what a surprise so um when they got there let's just say two three weeks they were trying to tail both the brothers and they had a hard time trying to get the brothers together trying to find the perfect place where they could pull off the hit and they really couldn't really get them together meanwhile back home in chicago the mob bosses were getting a little antsy a little aggravating, upset, like, hey, what's taking so long? You know, you're out there two, three weeks. You're spending all this money. Make a long story short, the bosses in Chicago called off the hit. They told everybody to come home. Now he talks about plan B is when they um, lured the brothers to a house in Bensonville. Hmm, interesting. You know, that, those guys, uh, uh, I know Frank Jr., when he was on my show before, he called it uh, lay, lay on somebody. I hadn't heard that term before, but they call that laying on somebody when they're following them around, watching them, trying to set them up to hit them. Uh, we, they talked about doing those kinds of things here, but they didn't call it, use that word lay on. They even talked about how sometimes you even have to get a refrigerator box and hide in it to watch somebody. And I thought, man, oh that's, that's pretty good. I, I never thought about that when I used a funeral tent once to watch a guy uh, for a while, but uh, not a refrigerator box. You bring up a good point. Nick Nick also goes into great deal, great detail. All the planning and the laying on that they did on their victims. I mean, they were a very, very organized crew and they, 
they went to great lengths to 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 go after a guy. So he he talks a, a lot about that. One 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 crucial thing that helped prosecute Jimmy Marcello was the day of the uh, Spilatros hit. Nick testified. Jimmy Marcello picked up Nick, John Fecarata, and Jimmy LaPetria at a venture store. Venture store is like a Kmart or a Walmart back in the day. And he testified that Jimmy picked them up in a real fancy um, minivan. So when Nick picked up, or when Jimmy Marcello picked up Nick, John Fecarata, and Jimmy LaPetria, he dropped them off at the house in Bensonville where they were killed. So that directly tied Jimmy Marcello to that murder. Oh, wow. That came directly from the top then, didn't it? Yeah. He also goes on how Jimmy Marcello and uh, Jimmy, uh, I'm sorry, Jimmy Marcello and Nick Calabrese were in Milan prison together. They were actually cellmates. Uh, uh-huh. And Nick was, um, you know, they were talking about some past crimes that they did. Nick was also telling them how, how his brother is treating him. His brother's really not paying him money that he rightfully owes him. So Jimmy Marcello, um, with his people on the street, was paying Nick Calabrese's wife $5,000 a month. Wow. You know, to kind of take care of Nick's family. He also, um, Jimmy told Nick that when they get out of prison, he wants Nick to come work for Jimmy's crew. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, he so was, they had a pretty good relationship. Yeah. He was kind of a young man on his way up after paying all those dues yeah. all those years. <laughs> Interesting. I tell you what, that's, uh, you mentioned that. Let's uh, try to thank you. You mentioned about these guys testifying on the stand, but let's, let's stay with uh, Nick Calabrese just a little bit. He was that that hit on Farrakata that that actually they took him down on you did they talk about that the details on that it kind yes, of they like did. went screwy and that's why that's why there ended up being evidence and normally those guys <clears throat> the ones I've seen they 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 kill somebody and if it's with a gun they get away from the murder scene far enough that nobody's going to be after them and they throw the gun away, just throw it away in the street. Usually they don't care if you find it because it's going to be clean. And, and so they just don't want to have any evidence left. It's just, I don't know how many mob murders we had and there was never any kind of evidence left at the scene. Mm-hmm. So tell us about that, John. And, and that's really the John Farrakata hits the one that turned Nick Calabrese. And it's kind of the last one, I guess, that this crew did, or before it would that been that would have been before the Spilatros, wouldn't it? After the Spilatros. John, Fe- John Fecarata was talked about a lot in the trial. He was a, a, a an interesting, uh, an important member of the Chinatown crew. John Fecarata was uh they as known as uh, the best wheelman in Chicago. I Meaning yeah. if you needed a getaway car, John Fecarata was your guy. He was also a killer. He was Nick Calabrese's best friend. So throughout his cr- criminal career, John Fecarata made a lot of mistakes. He broke a lot of the rules. But because he was such an important part of the crew, they kind of like gave him some slack. However, after the Spalachos were killed, a second team was charged with burying those brothers to get rid of those brothers. They were never supposed to be found, those brothers. So John Fecarata who was part of the Spalatro murders, he stayed behind at the house in Bensonville. And him and his crew, 
they were responsible for burying the Spilatros in Enos, Indiana. It just so happens it's not too far from Joey Iupa's farm. Yeah. So now picture five, six guys from Chicago. They're in Indiana in a cornfield. It's pitch black. <laughs> they, lo- they lost communication with their walkie-talkies. They heard something, so they got spooked. So rather than dig a, a deep grave, they dug a very shallow grave and got the hell out of there. As you know the story, a couple of days, couple of weeks later, the farmer noticed two spots here. They called the authorities. They found the Spilatros. So that was it for Fecarada. That was the last straw for Fecarada that he botched the burial. So now John Fecarada is a very savvy mob guy. He's not going to get in the car with anybody. He knows he's on thin ice with these guys. The only guy he trusted was his best friend, Nick Calabrese. Uh-oh. So after the Spilatros were killed, they they tricked Thakarada. They said, hey, we got to blow up this dentist's office that owes us money. So they met in an area northwest of Chicago near Belmont and Central. They met in the uh, the parking lot. It was Nick and Thakarada. Nick had made a fake bomb. It was basically flares that he made it look like dynamite. Yeah. He also had a gun on him. So when Frank went down, I'm sorry, when Nick went down to pick up the, the fake bomb, he pulled out a gun. Fecarada said, oh, no, not you. So they started struggling. The gun was fired. Nick didn't even realize he accidentally shot himself in the arm. So now Fecarada's running for his life. He knows this is it. His time is up. Nick Calabrese is injured. He doesn't even really know that he shot himself in the arm because his adrenaline was a pumping. So Nick is running and Nick testified why he's chasing Fecarada. He knows in the back of his mind, if he doesn't kill Fecarada, yeah. he's going to get killed. Yeah. So finally, Fecarada finally makes it to the door of this bingo hall. As he's about to open the door, Nick shoots him in the head and kills him. Done. So now Nick just killed his best friend. He realizes he's he's injured, and his brother and this guy Johnny Apes were were the the getaway car. They weren't in the spot they were supposed to be. So now Nick's like, "Oh my God, where where's my brother? Where is he?" <laughs> so he takes the gun and he dumps it in the sewer. Nick didn't realize it, but he dropped the bloody glove. He he didn't realize this. So after that, he hooks up with Frank Calabrese. Uh, um, the other guy, he tells him he killed Thakarada. So to make a long story short, they couldn't take him to any doctor. So they took him to a veterinarian that Jimmy Marcello recommended. They so went <laughs> to a veterinarian. TV in the movies, man. <laughs> so the veterinarian treated him. And then they wanted Nick to, uh, to lay low for a while till this passed on. Make a long story short, years later, the government had this bloody glove in evidence. So what they did, they went around to all the federal prisons and and swabbed every single Chicago outfit guy. One match, it was Nick Calabrese. Now, this is years later. They went up to Nick and they say, listen, we found the bloody glove. Your DNA matched in the Thakarada hit. At first, Nick, Nick had nothing to say to him. He told him to go away. He's not talking. Fast forward a couple months later, they went back to see him again. I think they threatened him with the electric chair, and he decided he's going to cooperate. 
So that Fekirata hit, that bloody glove, and um, tied in with Frank Jr.'s letter, that's what started the Family Secrets investigation. Uh, well, that was something, you know, and, and during this, we talked about this a little bit. I did a show on this. I don't know. I'm curious if you've noticed any change in the security during this trial. One of those U.S. Marshals, a guy named John Ambrose, was going to try was giving some information to the Marcellos and they in a, in a wiretap or a, a, a hidden microphone in a prison. They had Jimmy Marcello talking to his brother, Mike, yes. I believe, about yes. this. And they picked up some different little code words like the babysitter. Did they did you notice any of that going on? Well, obviously, high security for this trial, more security than for this trial than than anybody else. But but during the trial, they show the prison tapes of Jimmy Marcello meeting with his brother, Michael Marcello, again, talking in code. And it's kind of hard to understand what they were talking about. But once once they broke down, Jimmy was basically wanting to find out, hey, I heard about Nick going bad. Is he going to testify or not? How can we get to him? And then Michael was going to be the the middleman to try to approach uh, John Ambrose. Um, and then you know the story about John Ambrose's father was a uh, right. Yeah, it was at the Marquette Ten or yes, yes, Marquette Ten. There were Chicago police officers, and that's one way I, I was uh, researching that story. It was really good police work on the part of a, an FBI agent or two when they were looking at those tapes and they picked up something about. Uh, I think they said the Marquette Ten and uh, a guy being a cop, and this was a cop's son. So they went back and they looked to see who the Marquette 10 were and they found their names and one was named, last name was Ambrose. Oh, and I think the father was dead and this, uh, the elder Ambrose was dead at the time. And, and so then John Ambrose, and then they look at John Ambrose and say, oh my God, he is assigned to security with Nick Calabrese and he has been at the house. And, and so it was. Yeah. What a coincidence. I mean, <laughs> really. so, so yeah, they were really trying to, to get to Nick one way or another because they knew Nick could put away a lot of guys, which he did. They never got to John Ambrose. They actually uh, indicted John Ambrose and his trial was, he got, he got charged for that uh, shortly after the family secrets trial. Yeah. I think I remember that. So um, uh, where are we at here now? Maybe talk a little bit about, you got anything else to say about the Calabrese's uh, that your step sticks out in your mind, I guess, uh, James. Well, I, I do. Um, Nick was a, a wealth of information. I mean, he not only did he talk about the, the 12 murders he committed, but he talked about other outfit murders and he talked about uh, all the different crews in Chicago and basically uh, an A to Z of the Chicago outfit. But one thing I thought interesting about Nick was he talked about how the different crews were, had, were specialized. For example, his crew, the Chinatown crew, at the time, uh, Andrew Lapetria was the boss. They talked about how the China tr- Chinatown crew was the best killing crew. Meaning if you had a serious guy that had to be killed, you give it to the Chinatown crew. Or say, say um, one crew was having a hard time killing somebody, they would, they would cancel that hit and give it to the Chinatown crew. So the Chinatown crew was your best killing crew. Then he talked about the Wild Bunch crew, Harry Elman, uh, Butch Petroselli. 
and how the Wild Bunch crew, how their MO was put on a ski mask, broad daylight, women and children outside, and they would blast the victim. No, like New York style. They didn't care about who seen it or anything. Then they talked about the Northside crew. The Northside crew, the Elmwood Park crew, they were done with violence. No more violence, meaning violence brings heat. So we're not going to kill anybody. We're not going to beat anybody. We're going to make money. Let's focus on the stock market, real estate, nightclubs, um, um, restaurants, cafes, legitimate business. So the, the Northside crew is making all the money, and these other crews were very jealous that the North Sky crew was making money. So I found that interesting that he talked about how the different crews operated and at times they worked together. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. That, that is, that's great stuff there. Well, thanks a lot, James. We're going to come back next week and let you finish up telling us about how these guys took the stand. Frank Calabrese senior took the stand, uh, Joey Lombardo took the stand. That ought to be a case. That ought to be pretty damn funny. Actually, he's a funny guy. And uh, the the Twan, the one of the policemen took the stand. Twan Doyle, or ex Chicago policeman, took the stand. So that's really unusual. Uh, three major mob characters trying to take the stand and convince the jury that uh, they didn't really do what their lion eyes are seeing, you know, <laughs> you can't believe those lion eyes. Uh, so I appreciate all you guys out there and keep coming back. Uh, watch out for motorcycles. Don't forget to uh, hit me up on Venmo once in a while at gangland wire, or buy me a cup of coffee, check out my uh, website, ganglandwire.com. Check my donate page, all that kind of stuff. And my public service message, uh, if you have any problems with PTSD, uh, reach out for help. And if you're a vet, go to the Veterans Administration. They have a PTSD hotline and there'll be a lot of help. So come on back next week and hear the second half of the Family Secrets trial. This has been great, James. Thanks a lot.